0: Black Cats Run Podcast
1: I'm Tristan Blackingresolved.
0: This is Black Cats Run. On today's episode, we want to talk about the significance of the intensities that we select and how the intensities that we select are determinant in overtraining. It seems simple, but the problem is is we oftentimes are confidently selecting and distributing training intensity and failing to recognize that as overtraining. Want to hear more? Let's get into today's episode. thing that I have been looking for is trying to figure out what is the point of friction. And by the point of friction, I mean, where is it exactly that we are sort of breaking down in our attempts to kind of move our understanding of how to train um, and improve at different things. Um, And I say different things, I'm purposely vague, because I think when we're thinking about this concept... We're thinking not just about endurance sports performance, but we are also thinking about performance in general. And I think there's a—I don't know if universality might sound a little presumptuous—but there is a significant uh, reciprocity of principle across multiple domains in which we look to uh, see improvement, um, and in which we look to see, for example, right, things that we might think of as being totally autonomous or unrelated intellectual-type pursuits versus physical pursuits. Um, I think the way that we talk about these um, is not obviously styled to look for the ways in which performance and improvement is similar across these areas, but I think there is uh, there's layers of similar. Um, people emphasize the grinding and misery in academic environments, oftentimes just as endemically as we see this in sports conditioning environments, and while this podcast is certainly clearly oriented around endurance sports, I think that we can actually find that there's better evidence to support best practice towards improvement um, when we look at what is actually also best practice across multiple sports, and it would raise the question, well, why is it the case that we continue to see um, this insistence that these levels of suffering uh, level work, this grinding, this misery is necessary. Um, and I think we've addressed that on other episodes in the podcast. If you want to hear more about that or you want to get pointed to those episodes, you can send us a message on our Instagram at Black Cats Run. And I'd be more than happy to uh, get back to you and talk to you more about that or point you in the right direction, uh, even give you people some, some uh, resources to take a look at on their own if they want to reach their own conclusions. But I think another layer to point out, um, and we're going to talk about productivity culture as uh, emblematic of a lot of the problems um, around our ability to see or really not see um, cause and effect relationships when working towards performance. Um, but that when we look at our culture right now, what we've seen is we've seen a significant uh, change in economic inequality and economic. Mobility, and you know, there's this sort of false consciousness that goes on where where we are consistently receiving uh, redirection uh, to try to think about um, the things that are hard in terms of like whether that's buying a house or whether that's how do I find a job that actually pays money. Like, where are these things posted or listed? Um, you know, how do I you know improve in my ability to do? my job well? How do I manage different things in my life? Right. These are the kinds of questions that a lot of us encounter as we move further and further into our kind of adult spectrum of responsibilities um, to ourselves and to others. And again and again and again, the answer is represented as like internal. Like you're the problem, uh, you know, you need to work on yourself. You need to come be better prepared, be more motivated, be more engaged. And, you know, ultimately that works down to a form of Equip yourself so you're able to take on and succeed in the hard work necessary. And that these look at these people who are outperforming you, their capacity to work harder um, is better. I listened to this, uh, I guess really watched really this Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce, Doc Rivers um, thing on Kevin Garnett's KG certified channel, uh, YouTube channel, or I don't know whatever you would call that. But I, I took a look at that because I remember watching in college. Uh, That 2008 Celtics team was something that, you know, happened a lot in the common room of my dorm my freshman year. And um, they were talking, right, about, you know, how people are so good in different skills. And Doc Rivers, um, who was often insulted and belittled as an incompetent uh, coach, uh, but I thought, you know, a lot of the stuff he was talking about was very, Insightful, and it sort of points to the fact that you know, as a coach, a part of like what goes on is you're dependent on other other people, right? And your ability to uh, win or not win is not always the best uh, objective measurement of your quality as a coach. And I thought a lot of the stuff he said was pretty shrewd. One of these things, as he talked about, um, they talked about the skill of you know how who's the best shooter on a basketball team, and uh, he said like you know where they had Ray Allen on their, the team at the time, and who was an incredible shooter in the um, sport. And he uh, talked about how this idea of, well, you know, if Ray Allen goes and, you know, consistently puts up the most shots a week, or right, or does the most meaningful practice every week, um, and he's already better than you, how are you ever going to get uh, any better, right? You know, and I think uh, any better relative to Ray Allen to be more specific. And I think that was really um, interesting, because if you apply that principle outward, right, a lot of how would we then interpret that, right? Some of us might interpret that as, oh, I need to work harder. But a better question would then be, well, isn't it the fact that Ray Allen is very good at this? And a part of the reflection of being good at it is he's put himself in this position of strategic advantage, where because his proficiency is so high, the level of practice that he can do while still working within proficiency instead of reaching the point of overtraining is also uh, very high as well, right? And so how do we think about that concept, right? How do we interpret this kind, these kinds of examples? Um, and then what kinds of conclusions do we reach from this stuff, I think is a big part of what's going on. And identifying, again, right, that what is that level of proximal development? Like presumably Ray Allen is doing that much shooting because that's what's necessary for him to feel that he's right. I don't know whether, obviously I do not know Ray Allen, but so I'm going to make an inference um, that right. Presumably it's a level to either believe you're maintaining or a level that's leading to improvement. Right. And finding that space for him, right. Is going to be different for different people, but that's not necessarily because of a like, talent per se, right? But that would be because of some kind of a a threshold of learning, like what's the outer boundary of practice that he can do before he starts to um, decline in return. So if he spends six hours a week practicing, maybe he gets benefit. But then if he goes up to six and a half hours a week, now he's spending more time, but maybe he gets less units of return per that time than he did when he was at six hours, right? So why would you go to six and a half hours? And if somebody is trying to catch up right to the level of a competitor is the best thing to do to like jump on that Nash equilibrium, because that's sort of what's implicit in there is how do you how do, you do that, right? And I, in fairness, I think that it sounded like Doc Rivers was sort of asking, asking that question. I think that's the right question to ask, right? Because at the same time, we do see people overtake other people and skill and ability. And we do see people catch up, right? So maybe in the short term, right, it would be difficult to do that. But then the, the like if the implication is, well, you need to be able to get to the point where you can do as much practice as Ray Allen, right? Well, so then what's the threshold that you need to critical threshold for work? Is it you need to go out and start immediately shooting as much as Ray Allen does? Is that going to work for you? Probably not, right? You probably have to identify You have to look at Ray Allen's practice, right, in this case, literal practice and figurative practice. We have to look at Ray Allen's practice and you have to say, okay, so if he's working, he's working towards, right, a boundary of proximal development, right? He's practicing a lot, but he's practicing proficiently. And this is a really easy example to to emphasize the concept that he's practicing proficiency, right? So practicing proficiency and we should say practicing with proficiency and his practice is proficient, right? So there's three ways in which we can think about the use of the concept of proficiency here, right? And it's very easy to measure proficiency in this context because um, the goal is to make baskets, right? And if you're not making baskets, then you're obviously not practicing well, right? So then you have to identify what do you need to do differently, including maybe sometimes stop practicing for a while, take a break, right? If you're a professional basketball player. I'm not a professional basketball player. So I don't know this, I suppose, for a fact, but I'm going to assume that this is true because I couldn't see how it'd be otherwise. If you're a professional basketball player, I'm assuming there's not a lot of value to practicing shooting if the ball isn't going into the hoop very much, right? And the whole point is to see the ball going into the hoop. So your threshold is you can't practice any longer or harder or more intensively than you can get the ball to go in the hoop, right? So if you're trying to then catch up to the skill level or the ability of Ray Allen, well, what do you want to be doing? Well, that's what Ray Ray is doing is he's practicing at the level, right, of his, you know, boundary of proficiency. So you don't go out and try to do the same amount of shots that he does because he has a different boundary of proficiency, which is why he's better than you. Um, You have to recognize that I need to identify my own specific, right, subjective boundary of proficiency, my own threshold, and I need to work to that point. Um, and we see this concept i think play out in multiple places across multiple domains um and the problem is is that uh when you get into uh endurance sport, although I'm sure it's just as much of a problem in basketball and and other things too, and that 's what i you know, and I suggested that already I know by talking about uh academic environments, but there's generally this sort of cultural uh false consciousness that when things are hard, it's because you're not working hard enough. Um, And that's a redirection from the fact that there's structural problems that are making things ineffective. So if you took the interpretation of Ray Allen, continuing that example to mean, okay, I simply need to work as much as Ray Allen. I need to imitate that, that routine. And that's not dissimilar from runners getting, asking for the training schedule or, or the special workouts. Um, Or how Kristen Armstrong just sort of charges people $800 a month and to just photocopy them all the exact same training schedule, right? I mean, that's just like taking people's money um, for basically nothing at that point, Um, right? But like people look at that and we have this like confirmation bias, this logic bias of, oh, this is an Olympic person. They're telling this thing. So this must be fundamentally good instead of asking the question, well, this can't be right because how could I have the exact same program or recommendation as somebody else? So that's the Ray Allen phenomena, right? Of like, well, Ray Allen is the best shooter. So I need to go out and immediately start doing exactly what Ray Allen is doing because that's the cause and effect relationship, right? But you can't quote unquote, catch up in that manner. Um, But that's the, that's the, that is what the false consciousness is. It convinces us that like the problem is us, right? When really the problem is systemic and structural, because it is the belief and conviction that certain intensities certain benchmarks are the correct appropriate models that we should be using to make our decisions about how to achieve or create improvement and in point of fact that that's not true and you know the evidence does not support that and the issue is that not that the evidence isn't there the issue then is that people do not know methodologically how to look at and interpret evidence and that a lot of us are doing this associative reasoning of this person is more significant, more prominent, so we're going to listen to them right And that's sort of like the paradox of the Black Cats Run podcast, right is because I don't have a Wikipedia page um, with a, a you know sidebar list of you know achievements, um, then people are more likely or more likely to not, you know, give this stuff due consideration, right? But when really we should be looking, being able to say is, okay, there is a best practice in terms of trying to reach conclusions and try to examine evidence. And, you know, it takes a while to do that and reason through that. Um, and that's why these episodes, you know, are typically an hour plus uh, is because in, in order to thoroughly try to break these things down so people can understand them and, you know, try to reach you know, through their own thought process, see these same answers as making sense, you know, we need to go into it in detail. And that goes against both the preference for a lot of people, and also the belief that, you know, if it's really meaningful or valuable, uh, you should be able to say it in five minutes or less. Um, And I I don't think that's true. But I know, I encounter people all the time who, uh, you know, don't have the patience or tolerance or interest. And I think that's because there's this belief that there's just kind of, the answer, And, you know, for a lot of us, when we went to school and, you know, were educated, what we learned is that intelligence is the capacity to know. And people oftentimes talked about their peers as being really smart because their peers knew the answer uh, in the class. But, you know, in a lot of contexts, that was like prior knowledge, right? Their threshold was higher in that environment. So, what they were being asked to do was easy for them. So, they were successful because it was easy, not because they were smarter than you or because they worked harder than you. They were more successful because it was easier for them to reach whatever that benchmark was. But within that environment, also, it was rewarding the ability to know discrete pieces of information. And then, a lot of times, you know, right in classes, you might then, you know, do something dynamic, which is have a debate, which is really dividing into groups and then telling each group that you need to. Like, it's maintain your position. And I don't really like uh, debates in classes because I don't, I mean, sometimes there, you know, can be like a stimulating social experience uh, for people. But, you know, most of the time you're actually just practicing not taking in other people's information and you're focused on telling other people why they're wrong, Um, (laughs) which is the exact opposite of what intelligence is. I think, right, to be intelligent is to be willing to take in new information and see things differently than we did before. Um, And that our, our capacity for divergent thinking, our capacity to let go of conclusions, and instead say that, well, I'm as intelligent as I am able to look at the evidence as what's important, right? But that belief that like, well, it's knowing something, that there are these discrete answers, you learn those discrete answers, you regurgitate those discrete answers, and then you're rewarded for that in kind, um, all of that serves to reinforce that, right? So then if somebody is going on and talking and talking, right, we are automatically inclined to assume that they don't have anything worth saying. Um, and I think that that's like a social uh, conditioning behavior, right? It's a problem of, of, of structural approach to knowledge and ideas. Um, so... Within this context, right, let's come bring now, try to circle back to um, the concept of, right, things more specific to endurance training and endurance performance, because, you know, that's the, the driver here is to try to answer these questions and figure things out more so towards that context, right? But relating it to these broader contexts, I think offers further validation, better validation for what we're talking about in this particular context. So I would say um, that lactate threshold two. Um, And I would put that in air quotes, but you can't see that on the podcast, obviously. You know, big air quotes. I'm only using that term for two reasons. Number one, um, because uh, people refer to this supposed point um, using that nomenclature. And then number two, because so many people think it is a thing. In principle, we shouldn't, if we're really trying to talk about how to actually design and just execute training alone, we shouldn't be talking at L2, LT2 at all because it is not a thing. Um, it is certainly not a second lactate threshold. I mean, the real argument for this being another point um, is the critical power concept, okay? And we can get into that in a little bit uh, to clarify. But LT2, I think, is an example of a uh, structural, uh, con- structurally dictated conclusion, um, wherein we are pointed toward a particular outcome or phenomena of practice, uh, in a manner that like is going to systemically lead to overtraining. Okay. It's going to systemically lead to overtraining. So I got a really good uh, question, um, the other day and a question was, um, thoughts on fat max and how to optimize, uh, different sources of energy during exercise, um, So I think this is a really good question and a really interesting question for probably more than one reason, but let's focus on one particular thing, right? So like in this question, we're wondering about um, this idea, right, of a metric or a benchmark. And a website that I particularly despise is INSIDE, all caps, it's like I-N-S-C, Y D, I don't really care if I'm spelling that their their thing correctly because that's not a real word. A and B, um, I don't agree <laughs> with any of the stuff they basically have on their site, and I'm not being paid by them to bring them up or try to refer people to them. Um, but I'm sure like if you're in cycling uh or triathlon culture, if you're in those spaces, um you've perhaps heard of these people. Um and I make it sound so nefarious, these people, but you've heard of this group or this coaching brand or coaching business or whatever. Um, and, you know, good for them for, you know, having some success with their business model, but this is not a, you know, business you know practices podcast. This is a training practices podcast. Um, and so we're going to be critical here. So they talk about a variety of different benchmarks and a variety of different points, a variety of different intensities. And, when you look at their material, you start to get the impression that, okay, there's all these different things that are going on and I need to be training up each of these different things. And it really focuses on this kind of like, I don't know if energetics is quite the right word or not, but I'm going to use that term here. This sort of energetics idea, right? Of there's like, you know, glycolytic flux and VLA max and fat max and, you know, right. You'll notice that a common denominator is that we're you know using a lot of terminology that you know doesn't invite a feeling of competence from the audience, right? So right away structurally that is putting um, the sort of uh, you know seller right the marketer or the coach here in a position of power because they're establishing that you know they have access to the you know divine knowledge the uh, you know the cult of secrets here and you're just the neophyte and you're going to basically be dependent on them to tell you what's going on, but it also implies through the veneers of legitimacy, you know, pictures of elite athletes, you know, aesthetics of presentation, you know, esoteric and inaccessible language, which oftentimes we sort of, for lack of understanding, assume to be, uh, you know, very correct um, because it's it's sophisticated and and unapproachable for us, um, you know, without a great deal of, of work, right? And if you're somebody like me and You know, you like to look at this stuff out of curiosity and you start to dig into it more. You start to realize that a lot of the stuff they're asserting is not substantiated. Um, It's, you know, a bunch of BS um, and it's just kind of absurd. Um, And sometimes when you read it, you can actually realize that they're sort of like acknowledging uh, that some of these things are not distinct, but then they just go back to insisting that they are distinct right? I mean, what's their end goal, right? Their end goal is to, you know, get, um, you know, X amount of revenue, you know, every revenue interval, right? Um, You know, not to pursue some absolute, like, optimal understanding, right? The understanding is optimal to the extent to which the revenue response from their business model is optimal, right? So, FatMax, circle back to that, okay? So, FatMax is basically the same thing, as uh LT1. Okay. And let's say LT1. When I say lactate threshold, uh, I mean LT, what a lot of you um I say you because to differentiate, because I don't think of it like this, right? So it can't be me, it must be other people. So for what for what perhaps you or other listeners might hear, might associate with LT1. Um, I'm when I say lactate threshold, that's what I'm referring to. I can't refer to a second lactate threshold because you know, my assertion, my argument here is it does not exist. Um, so I would say first thing, right, with this FatMax idea, right, and how does that relate to LT1? Um, so Tim Noakes is an interesting article. You can find the PDF online. The title of the article is, What is the evidence that dietary macronutrient composition influences exercise performance? A narrative review. Really uh, interesting article it kind of you know takes a look at some of the history of you know research that has led to some of these current current paradigms and in particular um, we have this paradigm of higher end performance is driven by carbohydrates, and there's a huge portion of like the sports uh, fuel sports supplement uh, industry is about like different carbo- sources of carbohydrate intake and the assumption is, or the what is put out there is this idea that in order to run fast, we're doing this off of carbohydrates, and that when we're going really slow and easy, that we're doing it based on um, fat metabolism, and so that we need to make this distinction between these two things. So the problem with this uh, concept is, number one, um, the reason why people think that there's this dichotomy like this is specifically due to the fact that there is a errant conception of this shift into carbs, and that carbs are determinant um, for performance and high-level performance, as a result of you know research that was done poorly. And I think that's basically one of the major things that NOx is trying to elucidate in that review of you know the past history of research on carbohydrate. Is trying to show that you know a series of incorrect and flawed conclusions based on, um, you know, studies that were either just interpreted incorrectly or where there were problems, you know, later you get into more like structural confirmation bias in the study design because people feel that they've already identified carbohydrate situations as being paramount, right? And, you know, it's the whole thing where people say studies show that blank um, is usually a good sign of like, probably a lack of meaningful understanding on the part of the speaker um, because it is, it's just not that – people don't just do a study and then like clearly simply evidence a given conclusion. Um, and so when we're thinking about this concept of you know fat max, well, that really only makes sense there's a fat max if there's this like switching effect where we go from fat to carbs – but that belief that that's happening is a construct of the literature, okay? And the problem is it seems to be, right, sort of reinforced experientially. Um, but my understanding of the literature is that we don't really switch between fats and carbs in the way that it has been popularly represented. What's happening is there's a decline in efficiency when we get over lactate threshold. and um, you know that's reflected by the point at, by that being the point at which we experience the onset of blood lactate accumulation, and this declining inefficiency is happening because we aren't making use of the available lactate uh, because we've exceeded the current capacity of the mitochondrial reticulum, right? So the other problem is that the if, is this is compounded by the belief that lactate production is reflective of, uh, you know sugar, carbohydrate uh, utilization. Um, and that therefore, right, like we're getting to this point, and that this is where we're really going hard. And this is where we're going faster. And this is where we have all this lactate. And so we must be really doing this, all this stuff driven by uh, sugar, by carbohydrates. Um, and I don't think that that's really true, because I think what's actually happening is that we're producing lactate uh, in some sort of structural relationship, uh, we're producing lactate in relationship to the demanding increase in intensity. But until we reach that lactate threshold, we're not going to exhibit an increase in blood lactate concentration. Why? Because we're utilizing that lactate, okay? And now some people might look at this and say, okay, so really what you're saying is we're using carbohydrates all along. What I'm saying is that's not not the point, right? The significance of whether we're using carbohydrates um, or fats is not the significant thing. And that fat max is just this thing that correlates with lactate threshold. And so, hey, when you study lactate threshold, you're going to find it to be a a point that seems to be indicative or maybe a little bit predictive of performance. Um, But right then people are labeling this fat max, which sort of, number one, downplays it, downplays its sort of centrality to all of this stuff. Um, But additionally, it like structurally is going to, um, you know, feed into these patterns of, of of misconception, right? And so then it becomes this like idea, oh, okay, you know, this is all about uh, energetics or my energy systems. And, you know, I need to work on this energy system. And then if I'm struggling, it's because of that energy system. Um, and then like, there's this, so then you have this idea, though, that like, well, if you raise your fat max, like those are the slow endurance athletes, and that the strong, powerful, fast athletes are more Uh, you know, glucose, sugar, glycolytic, whatever, blah, blah. So that's not as absurd, okay? Um, And I've said this on other episodes, but let's use this example again. Um, Like 4.30 pace for a marathon is 4.30 pace for a marathon. It's not faster or slower if it was hypothetically fat max or or VLA max. Additionally, like most of us are going to struggle to ever run a mile in under 4.40 or in 4.30 Ever, period. Like most people aren't doing this point blank, right? And yet we know that people can do this for two hours, okay? So people can do this for basically two hours. Well, what does that suggest about our concept of, you know, fats and carbs and, and whatnot, right? Because there's this also, this people, and they also assert in this fat versus carb transition, you know, fat max, VLA max, glycolytic flux, uh, you know, space paradigm. That you know, well, you can only really do your best at that point, right? But it's like, but people are able to run 4:30 pace and be under this so-called fat max, right? So I guess this idea then, that like, oh, if, but then it's like, oh, if you're training to run a mile in 4:30, right? Then we're telling people that's glycolytic, yeah. But but then some people are training to do that at fat max, right? And then nobody's really explaining that or talking about that, um. And we sort of, and that's a part of like our, our concept that people really can't improve very much, um, that most people aren't going to really exhibit much uh, improvement. And I've said many times that I think the reason why we're not seeing a ton of people exhibiting significant improvement is because of the the problems in the training approach, right? Like one of the things that I'm trying to emphasize heavily here is the belief in lactate threshold too being a thing, um, and like the So really what's happening is just that like it's not fat max at all. Um, It's the lactate threshold, okay, Um, is what's significant. And that when you get over that point, you're inefficient. We also know we're inefficient because guess what? As we start to increase intensity up to the point of lactate threshold, even if your lactate threshold is five-minute pace, you're going to continue to feel easy all the way up to five-minute pace, see? Because the determinant thing isn't the amount of power you're doing or the velocity you're doing. The determined thing is the degree of efficiency. And when you go over that point, then it starts to rapidly become harder and harder and harder. And then people go like, oh, but then you get into the heavy domain. And I've said before that like a non-linear exponential function is still a constant mathematical relationship. you know. And our experience of fatigue is subjective to the brain, right? That's subjective to the central governor. So the governor is increasing uh, the response of fatigue over the point of lactate threshold. Why would it want to do that? Because we've uh, crossed over the point of efficiency. And, you know, so I think that, you know, a lot of these these things, you know, you could ask to what extent they're sort of become sort of driven by market dynamics of, well, as a coach, what do I need to need to say? Um, to get people to want to consume my product, or right? Or like purchase the service of coaching here, right? And if, you're, if your incentive or your need is to sort of make that work as a source of income, you're going to make your choices based on what people are willing to consume at the end of the day. Because if you don't produce training advice that people are willing to consume, then things aren't going to be effective. And, you know, as we're going to show, right, this is why we're so susceptible to overtraining practices, is because in general, I think that we have this um, cognitive psychological issue where we're not good at making choices. Uh, we're not good at knowing uh, what works. And you probably, and any of you listening can probably think of multiple people that you know, you know, family members, close friends, acquaintances, people you work with, who you're probably consistently flabbergasted by the kinds of choices that they make. Um, and this decline in efficiency I think really is driven by that central governor, again, upregulating the fatigue response to exercise um, when we lose that metabolic efficiency that corresponds with accumulated blood lactate. And that, you know, it sort of suggests that like the brain is sort of more or less not concerned about how fast we're going or how much power we're doing. It's concerned about how metabolically efficient we are because we, like our body has evolved to survive on a day-to-day basis in a you know, not to sound too Hobbesian, but in kind of a state of nature type environment, right? Um, Not in a like environment where is it possible to exercise enough to not be, you know, overweight because, you know, of just the food calorie abundance that we now live in, in this post uh, kind of post-industrial food apocalypse or whatever. Um, you know, but it seems very likely to me that the historiography in the sense of the research about carbs as illustrated by Noakes is, is making it clear that the reason why the fat max concept exists at all is because of misconceptions of carbs um, as a high octane and that we switch on to carbs to get to higher levels of performance, um, right? But that comes from the same people who assert that, um, you know, we don't start producing lactate um until it starts accumulating. And that's the whole lactate is a, is a waste product. And I think that um, you know, when I come at this stuff from, you know, with a, you know, part of my academic background is in history and historical method. And, you know, you're seeing Noakes doing a little bit of this in some of his writing, but I think in which I think is representative of the significance of this, is that I think a lot of times if we're coming to this stuff from just like a sciences or a physiological background. Um, in terms of approach, we're not really thinking that it's necessary to look at how do these ideas come to be. But in a historical method approach, right, when you study, say, like the development of ideologies and beliefs, you know that those are accumulated over time. And you know that like through the study of history, oftentimes you can demonstrate that things that people believe to be true, that are essential, that are best practice, that are right or wrong and culture or society actually come from these points of like no basis or no legitimacy. And that's where history is so significant, for example, in the studies of things related to social justice and equality and that kind of thing. But you can equally use it effectively here and say, okay, well, why are these things coming through, right? So if somebody tells you, right, if you're in a class and you learn lactate is this and, you know, glycolysis is this and fat is this, we should be asking the question, well, where did this belief come from, right? Instead of just saying, okay, this is an absolute that I need to memorize and regurgitate, what you really need to be encouraging is a skill of like, okay, can we learn how to determine if this is actually true for ourselves, right? And if this is this thing we're going to learn, then we need to be able to like verify it ourselves, right? We need to have a process of verification. And, you know, what Noakes is doing is saying, let's do that, let's go back, let's look at the information. And when we look at the information, we learn, okay, this stuff's a bunch of bull crap, right? And so that means all of the sort of you know, post-factoid conclusions in turn fall apart and have to be dispensed with, right? And that's why, you know, we've also talked about this idea of like evidence-based training practice, like training practices are good uh, if you're exhibiting uh, improvement and if you can demonstrate, right, what practices that you've added that have caused this improvement. So I posted a graph on the Instagram page for, uh, you know, Mike Watson and, You know, I talked about this on YouTube video, but, um, you know, from October 5th to December 11th, his lactate um, to power data didn't improve. Um, But then in just a four-week interval, he showed a significant improvement from changing to, okay, going to try to specifically identify and work towards more of this lactate threshold kind of intensity. And that would be an example of the data supports that conclusion. Now, if, right, we continue to go down that direction and then we say, okay, now we're not exhibiting the improvement, then we would say, let's re-strategize. And then that's, you know, another layer of concern, right, is how do you effectively re-strategize? How do you better determine what's the most uh, effective? And if you look at the book, uh, Easy Interval Method by Klaus Lux, you know, it talks about this concept too, right? talks about this lactate Threshold concept. And to my mind, evolutionary biology means the body must seek out points of efficiency. So, like, lactate must be a preferred metabolite. Why would the body waste all of this process producing this thing all the time? Um, and it's everywhere, right? It's in your sweat. Like, it's everywhere. We're just going to abundantly produce a product that's not useful, right? And we're going to apply, evolve pathways to specifically produce this thing all over the place that's just a waste product, right? Like that just doesn't even hold up um, to basic, you know, reasoning within the context of what, you know, evolutionary biology tells us about why organisms, you know, are designed the way that they are. Um, and so, if it's a preferred metabolite, it's it's um, in the blood because it's not being used. And so, if you're not using a preferred metabolite, and you're, but you're also doing more work. Then you have to be inefficient. That's what inefficiency is. Not taking advantage of, you know, available energy is efficient is inefficient. Um, and it's reinforced by the fact that I think this fits with everything we know about learning, about growth and improvement, and that the best results occur from working at the point of proximal development, which is very close to, but not over, our maximum proficiency, i.e., a kind of a threshold. It also aligns with. Um, Flow psychology, which says that high levels of skill matched by a commensurate high level of challenge is the most engaging point for intellectual and physical tasks. But what do we consistently do? We consistently try to find the a level of challenge that is well beyond our level of skill. The flow state is a state that feels very good. It's a state that we actually want to be in. It's very satisfying for, for us to be in because we feel very competent. We feel very much in control. And when people talk about runner's high and they talk about, you know, endorphins, this or whatever, like, you know, that's just stupid, right? What's really going on is you're getting into a state where you feel like you're doing something challenging in exercise, but your level of skill is matched to it. So that's giving you that sense of flow, um, of flow, right? Uh, That state of enjoyment, right? That balance between feelings of kind of like arousal, but also feelings of control. And there's just too much alignment across all these different domains for LT to not have to then be the essential lever for improvement and determinant for um, performance. And like one of the most interesting things to me about the LT2 paradigm is that anybody could just circle any intensity point uh, over lactate threshold um, and just assume an association with a given lactate value. Um, This is not just me saying this, you know, other, other people, you know, in the, Field researching this stuff in the academic field, you know, are trying to articulate the fact that this four millimole, two millimole stuff is totally bunk. That it's it's totally meaningless. You can't use this. Like these values have to be um, any values you're going to try to identify have to be identified on a case by case basis. They're actually testing the given individual, not just whipping out a lactate meter and being like, "Oh, am I have four millimole. Okay, that means I'm this is my such and such." You know, but like you can just do this anywhere is the problem, right? And then you can say, oh, yeah, well, I think this is a threshold, right? But that's not how that works, right? So the actual lactate threshold is a clearly a threshold because there is a significant change. You go to the point of increasing intensity does not lead to blood lactate accumulation, to now increasing intensity does lead to blood-lactate communication. But just circling any given thing and saying, oh, that's a threshold and that's limiting my performance. Well, once you get over the point of inefficiency, any level of intensity you select is going to feel kind of hard, right? And like the shorter the duration, obviously the harder it's going to be, right? Um, At least if you are trying to like maximize the power or velocity you can do over that duration, right? But this is the same thing as if like a miler or a 1500-meter runner might think they need to improve their 200 meter or 400 meter best time or speed, you know. Well, then that becomes a threshold concept, right? And well, of course, a runner cannot run a quarter mile. If a runner can't run the quarter in under 60, then they're probably not going to run four quarters. They're not going to run a whole mile in under four minutes. Duh, um, you know. But the the light bulb moment for Arthur Lydiard was that he had read you know, somebody else's perspective on this, right? Which is reflective of the fact that we want to be drawing our ideas by looking at and actively and engaging with, you know, other sources and whatever. But he had read a book that was published, I think, in the early 30s. Um, And the author had, whose name I don't remember, the author had said and made the point that a lot of people at the time were running the quarter mile in less than 50 seconds. And this is true now. You High school kids who do no, basically no training, you know, to speak of are relatively lean, um, but otherwise have no nothing unique going on in terms of practice or preparation. Will sometimes go out and suddenly just kind of turn into a sub fifty second four hundred meter runner over the course of four weeks in a track season. Um, and right, the author said a lot of people are doing this, but nobody can run the mile in under four minutes, right? The speed they need to run is significantly slower than they can run for one lap, but nobody can hold this very slow speed for four laps. So the author said the issue must be an issue of endurance. And Littier says in an interview that this was like the big sort of epiphany for him. Um, and then they, you know, changed to say, okay, like, what? Well, how do we develop endurance? And I've argued before that pedagogically they arrived at a concept that if we went back in time and measured that, we would see that they were... Basically, all training around lactate threshold with the with their training intensity, and that was their target productive training intensities. You know, doing that for an hour to probably seventy minutes every day, and then doing the second easier uh, run. You know, either in the the opposite point of the day, right, the morning or the afternoon, opposite to that lactate threshold run, right. But they weren't just he he described it subjectively, um, right. And this is also the guy who said train, don't strain right? What's the point of strain, the point of declining efficiency? So higher boundaries or socially constructed thresholds of speed, right, versus the physiologically validated concept of uh, lactate threshold, right? Um, You know, those higher boundaries are just kind of like a limiter themselves, right? Or it's it's the limiter, right? But the principle, it's true, right? If you can't drop Go out in the track and drop a sub 6400. You know your sub 4 minute miling ambitions are you know not justified. Um, but the principle of specificity here is where people go off the rails and then get into this overtraining stuff. I think is because they look at this and they say, okay, uh, practice that um, that defined higher boundary. And the principle of specificity should not be interpreted that way. Instead, it should be interpreted as. Define the training practice which when compared to all other possible training practices, is most impactful in exhibiting a change in the defined higher boundary, i.e like what's the opportunity cost relationship of different training? Um, you know otherwise with LT2 or critical power, since that's just another kind of personal best for a given distance, um, you know how is that any more meaningful than just somebody taking their PR for 10 miles? And then somebody could just say, well, my 10-miler is limited by my, you know, 10,000-meter threshold, by my critical threshold. Well, what's your critical threshold? Oh, that's how fast I can run for the 10K. And then they say, well, what limits your 10K? Oh, my 10K is eliminated, limited by my 5K, but that's not what people do, right? Really, but like that's the same thinking, right? And they could keep doing this, et cetera, et cetera, until they're in the weight room doing a single, you know, one leg rep max and whatever resistance training movement they've sort of logically found their way to, right? But it's like it's except- somehow it's acceptable to say for a, a 5K runner that their critical power or lactate threshold two is a limiter, right? And that's lesser than their, um, actual, you know, race duration or race target, right? But then the lactate threshold one or actual lactate threshold is somehow not valid, okay? Like, how do you know, right? How do you know lactate threshold two? Well, people train at that intensity and they get better, okay? People train at all kinds of intensities and get better, okay? People train at all kinds of intensities and get better. We're not debating whether or not different kinds of training can elicit a response that we can say is a measured improvement in fitness. We're saying, like, what is like the by, the most efficient point, right? And I think in a lot of cases, it's by far and away the most efficient point of training to the point where, you know, once you've sort of established or had an initial response to training, you basically get stuck and you're never really going to get any better um, using this stuff. Um, and I think like, if you think about uh, Dan Plews, you know, a listener referenced me to Uh, podcast talking with Dan Ploos. And, uh, you know, he's talking about starting, you know, LT2 and starting out with VO2 max and really working on that first. and Right. So basically describing funnel periodization. Um, Well, it's, I mean, most of what he's really able to do as a coach is what most coaches are doing, which is if you apply and if you can get the athlete to apply enough stress time at any given intensity point, you're going to see some level of epigenetic responses to that stress. Now, Jack Daniels, you know, was famous for, among other things, but like famous for not wanting runners to run very much. And he said that, well, basically at 40 miles a week, you're getting, you know, 80 to 90% as good as you're ever going to get. Um, But, you know, his Jack Daniels running formula really pointed people towards these very high intensity levels of performance. And this is the problem with observing um, like just carte blanche, if you're just sort of generically looking at the high performing athletes um, in general, right, you're going to just sort of observe and measure the, the Nash equilibrium, right? And you're going to dismiss people who are trying things that are different as outliers. When What you really need to do is you really need to look at like, how much of these people improved over time, right? Not who are currently the best performers? And what kind of training practices do they happen to be doing right now? Right. So it's this again is so it's more of a historical question than it is like a practice of immediate contemporary observation. Um, Now, of course, the problem is it's like it's very difficult uh, to get fitness improvements when you're training at these high intensities, since you have to literally overtrain, like in order to do the amount of volume of practice at those intensities to elicit a meaningful aerobic adaptation because it's such a poor way to try to get to that epigenetic response. And what do we see that reflects this as being a crappy approach? People are constantly sore. There's huge levels of muscular fatigue. There's failing planned workouts constantly because of unpredictable patterns of recovery. Um, And then that feeds into things that people are constantly have mixed levels of muscular fatigue when they do their next training session and then they go and then that's going to then lead to further unpredictable fatigue. And Arthur Lydiard says that he did one of the things in that uh, interview where he talks the same interview that I referenced earlier. He says that, uh, you know, they tried the interval training. It didn't work because like you'd show up one day and you'd be able to work out. The next day you show up, you wouldn't be able to move. Um, and then as a consequence, you like couldn't improve steadily over time and you couldn't control performance. And, you know, in his words, you couldn't peak on the day in question, right? Which is like that's the competitive incentive, is to be like, can I get to my very best performance at the time that it's most meaningful to me to be able to demonstrate what my best performance can be, either to myself, to my competitors, right, to you know, the assembled sporting crowd, whatever the case may be. But what do we do now? Well, we just sort of think that injury is sort of an inevitable risk factor for the training that's needed, quote-unquote, needed to improve. And then they further rationalize, right, that with all of these recovery practices, right, and so then if it's like you're getting injured or it's not working well, it's not that the training is bad. Um, it's that you're not recovering properly. But there's no data, there's no real empirical, objective, absolute evidence that's showing these training pra- these recovery practices, excuse me, do anything, right? But when the false consciousness is that it's not the training that's the problem, um, this is what has to be done and you have to find a way to do it, people are going to look to other sources, they're going to look to other outlets. And, you know, I think many people for in, in triathlon are using this this concept, but, you know, so are a lot of other sports, right? And I think that they're all at a Nash equilibrium of what I would say is, is just bad training. But within that methodological paradigm, you know, somebody's going to be the fastest, But that doesn't prove that the training is great. Um, You know, Gustav and Kristen, the two Norwegian guys, you know, at, you know, Kona last year, the big triathlon race in Hawaii, uh, you know, they were the exception among, you know, that competitive field, right? And that was demonstrated by their exceptional level of fitness. And their coach, you know, said on his interview on the Rich Roll, if that's the guy's name, right? Rich Roll, who cares? Rich Roll, we'll go with that. Rich Roll podcast, you know, he said there's only one threshold, right? And he says this, but it just goes right out the window because that's not what people, you know, want to hear and that's not what's commonly being circulated. But like that was a really critical piece of information. And it was was clear from watching their training and, and the lactate stuff and learning more about the lactate stuff, it was already pretty clear that they really weren't working at this crazy level of intensity that a lot of other people were doing. And you can just, if you've watched these sports enough, you can just tell that they're under control. Um, and of course, what have we seen this year? those so both of those guys have been pretty unremarkable. Um, you know, obviously, there's vicissitudes of, of life and stuff like that. And I'm not, don't need to be insensitive. And, you know, in fairness, I think it's extremely unlikely um, that they are listening to this podcast. So I don't think we have to worry too much about you know, made, making people feeling uh, feel unjustly critiqued. Um, but my goal anyway isn't to critique them as individuals. I don't know them as individuals. Um, my goal is to critique in terms of strategy. You know, when they released a YouTube video, the Norwegian method and Christian Blumenfeld and Gustav Eden's winter training, uh, winter lab testing. You look it up on YouTube and watch it. But basically in this video, you know, there's kind of like promotional, right? Um, But they're basically stating that, oh, we're going to be the first people to go back to short course. And this requires different kinds of training. got to focus more on the VO2 max and the things like this and blah, 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 you know, hyping up whatever. Fine. Um, And it didn't work. You know, (laughs) it didn't work. I And I didn't think it was going to work. I was very skeptical, you know, Um, and... Like, why, right? Because now they're going back to what they're thinking about, these VO2 max things. They were already in better shape than everybody else, okay? They were doing it differently than everybody else, and they were destroying everybody. But then there's this belief, okay, we're going to do these shorter races. we got to work on these other things. Well, what you should be looking at is being like, okay, I'm in worse shape, right? I'm, but that's not the paradigm, okay? All right, and that's the Nash equilibrium, right? Is they started, do, instead of doing what they, when with the long distance, races, they were thinking more about doing what they thought was best, right, based on their data and their evidence. But then when they went back to the short course, they're like, oh, this is so competitive. And so somehow the idea is the best thing to do is to do what everybody else is doing. But in a competitive environment, like if you do what everybody else is doing, you're guaranteeing that you're just going to blend in to the herd, right? That's the effect of that Nash equilibrium, you need to look for a strategic advantage with this stuff. So like, when we try to when we reach the wrong conclusions about where productive investment of training time lies, that's going to always feed into overtraining, right? And again, overtraining isn't the point at which you regress. Um, It's, it's not like when you're, you're just imploding and you just can't exercise every day. Yeah. It's probably well past the point of overtraining. Overtraining is actually happening much earlier, right? It's when you add intensity or volume, right? If you, Increase the load, and the increase in the load leads to a fitness response that is lesser. Okay, you're trying to apply load to get a training response. This is something for me that you know I continue to be surprised um, at how uh, you know much of a difference this makes in terms of thinking about the intensity, but not continue. And it's very difficult for me to not fall into the trap of okay, I now I've gotten in shape. Um, And now I'm going to go back to this stuff. And, you know, that's my concern for a lot of people who are kind of consuming the and thinking about these ideas from Black Cat's Run is that it's like, okay, I can use these ideas to get in shape or, you know, this guy's kind of a total crackpot because he doesn't believe in LT2. But, you know, I can use this stuff to kind of get my base fitness down, get my LT1 down. And now that I've got that down, now I'm ready to go and get the real benefits and do the real training. And, you know, that's not going to work. And, you know, over the last couple months, you know, I, you know, right, it's this temptation. Okay, now I got to fall back into this pattern, which is like, okay, I got to be doing this many hours on this day and I got to check it off. And, right, you know, sort of designing, you know, that, you know, aesthetic, right, trying to train aesthetically, let's say, right, versus training rationally, right? And then I have some days where it's like, okay, I wake up and I'm like, you know, 5 o'clock. I'm like, I am exhausted. I'm concerned about going to work and being actually like cognitively functional teaching my classes, if I just get up now and start exercising. So, you know, I skipped that session and then I feel like guilty and bad about myself. And I'm, oh, I'm slow. And now I'm going to be, you know, humongously overweight and all of this stuff. And then I come back and I go to do, you know, a training session. Okay, time to, all right, let's do LT2s. And that, I mean, sorry, LT2, blah. I do LT two days later. And then I feel great. I'm like, what am I worried about, right? But I still, it's a it's a constant internal struggle because it conflicts with a lot of stuff that we've been programmed to do, programmed to think. And we also just don't have very good tools for um, comparing different training strategies and or we don't really want to put the cognitive investment into doing so. Or since ah, I already basically know how to train, I'm really good at training. I know how to train better than anybody else I know. So therefore, I don't need... I like tape meter and I don't need a stride pod. and don't use this stuff if you don't want to, but you can't tell me that um, you're better. You're so good that you don't need data or that data couldn't tell you anything. I, I don't believe that. And I think everybody would benefit from that. And I think those of us who are the most confident are the ones of us who need data the most because we're the least likely to think divergently about our own training because the same concept of I understand how to train the best means that is also another flip side of that coin is like, I, you know, don't need to think or reevaluate if my training is working or not, because I just kind of know, right. And that becomes a really fixed mindset. Um, And high intensity is not a bad thing per se. Listen to our uh, episode on the speed merchant. I think you should do this stuff. Okay. That's the other thing, right, is it's going to get whitewashed as, oh, this is the anti high intensity. I, this isn't there isn't a dichotomy here, right I'm not engaged in some battle against low volume. I'm not engaged in some battle against you know high intensity right That's a you know misunderstanding of the paradigms that are at play here, right That's a misunderstanding of the paradigms right here. I'm not in that paradigm, so if you're interpreting what's going on in this podcast from a different paradigm, you're not going to get what we're really trying to communicate about here on Black Cats Run. Um, Because I do think you should do that stuff. I just think the way people are doing it is they're using training intensities, these higher training intensities, to try to accomplish things that they don't really accomplish, except if you just chronically overdo them to the point where like, if you can go week after week after week of torturing yourself and hating yourself every time you do a workout, and you can avoid getting injured or quitting, then yes, you'll eventually exhibit some sort of a response. But meanwhile, somebody else can be happily going along loving life and just be getting way better than you way faster without any of that torture. Um, like when, for example, right, Dan Pluse talks about VO2 max, so we've got to train to improve the VO2 max. And I'm not the only person who thinks this, you know, Steve Magnus, you know, is also, you know, very clearly crit- critical or uh, inclined to critique the idea of training to improve VO2 max, um, right? And that like that becomes a problem because it doesn't exist, right? Um, and it's not good practice to train to improve an abstract value that only exists and can only really be created uh, in these laboratory-induced environments or these hyper-experiential uh, experimental environments, right? I suppose if you try to test it outside in some way um but then it doesn't even exhibit 50% of the time <laughs> so you're measuring something that only man- can only manifest itself in a particular context and you know the probability you're going to measure it is you know less likely than a coin landing on heads when you flip it like how is that a good thing to be like oh yeah let's train that let's train that thing right that, that you're just you know that's just a pipe dream um you know and it's not like we don't we do want to train by science, So we also don't want to train by science. We don't want to train towards the scientifically defined things. We want to train by measured improvement. Now, when you identify LT1, because you could turn, you could try to turn this back on me, right, would be a rhetorical strategy and say, well, you don't think you should train by VO2 max, but then how do you think you should train by LT1? Well, because LT1 is like actually a thing, like 100% of people will exhibit a point of accumulation versus you know, less than 50% of people exhibiting a VO2 max. Okay. Um, It's also the case that um, like you can measure, right, that change in efficiency in other ways, right? So you can show, right, that that efficiency is different because you can show in performance that you can drive this in correlation to performance 100% of the time. Okay. Unless the athlete shows up and they've overtrained themselves with like, you know, getting overzealous on long runs or like, I'm feeling so good. And like I said, you know, the idea of now I've gotten in shape using Black Cats Run stuff, you know, I've got my base down. Now it's time to move to the high intensity stuff, right? If you show up and you're totally cooked um, by the time you get to your race event or your target, you know, obviously you're going to crap the bed, right? Obviously, that's what's going to happen. So we got to stay away from that. That's not going to work. And like, but otherwise, right, if we eliminate that issue of, you know, fatigue, because that's the other nice thing about lactate threshold is we're actually eliminating the problem of overtraining because we're thinking about this from a fatigue management perspective instead of like a fatigue management vis-a-vis the way we train (laughs) not vis-a-vis these nonsense recovery modalities like shining like wrapping your legs in christmas tree lights and being like oh yeah these different lights have different effects on your muscle tissues like other totally bogus crap that for some reason people are just inclined to just you know drink straight from the tap um but you know we live in a clout driven environment you know and that's always been true in sport. And what we see is that like expanding exposure through developments in media, they just like accentuate that inherent stuff. Um, You know, it's the difference between logical and rational. Logical is when people just observe and assume. You know, it's very Aristotelian. Uh, rational is observe, hypothesize, prove or disprove, and then improve. Right? And that's what we're trying to point people towards. Um. You know, and the ultimate ambition is that we can all think of training as our own experiment, right? And that we're testing out different things, and that over time, you know, we're seeing how that stuff works, and we build that that data. And of course, if you had many, many different people, you know, approaching training from this perspective, you know, via like my hypothetical hypothetical blueprints app, um, and we're all aggregating our training data, then we're going to start to really see these these practices, right? And through that combination of uh, data, we're going to be able to much more rapidly kind of profile what is actually effective. And I think we're going to profile you know, a lot of these like high intensity to Im- basically improve because that's the other thing, right, is all that's really happening with VO2 max or LT2 training is you're not actually improving the VO2 max or the LT2 because those things are basically fabrications. Um, you're really just getting the benefit that's happening because you improved your LT1. You know, at one millimole, uh, Michael Watson improved by 14 watts. But at 12 millimoles, he improved by 35 watts. And that was trying to keep all the training workouts in in my mind as close to ideally as much as possible as close to, uh, you know, LT1, except for one X factor session a week, which might have been one by 1200 or three by 600 or something like that. And, um, you know, look at that effect right? And you can look at the graph on our Instagram page. Look at that effect, right? Training at the lower intensity not only shifted the lactate threshold, but it also had even more positive impact on these higher intensities that people are so obsessed with, okay? And that's that's something that's significant. I don't think it's something that we should just dismiss or overlook. Um, You know, can we demonstrate behavioral anecdotal associated practices, uh, which frankly, the anecdotal information itself is also represented. Um, Can we demonstrate these behavioral anecdotal associative practices in this cloud-based environment? I think, yes, we can show this very easily. uh, Because behaviorally, it's actually so common um, that, as I said before, I wonder if on a cognitive psychological level, we're predisposed to think in this way. And, you know, it would certainly go a long way to explaining why learning in school can be so frustrating. um, Because, like, rational thinking is something we have to consciously practice imposing over the top of our natural reasoning system. So to sort of, let's think about this concept to sort of break this down. Uh, Let's look at productivity culture, okay? I think this is a great example of this and it relates directly to this problem of overtraining. So I do think our dispositions can impact decision-making and that can then influence how we approach the intensity of training or shape other expectations and subsequent actions around sport. and I think that when we look at productivity culture, we see that this is used to further validate the belief that it's exceptional practices that make success and development of aptitude you know, possible, a la Malcolm Gladwell's you know, outlier hypothesis, um, that it's you know, these outliers and it's the outlier behaviors and the unique behaviors that um, define uh, the possibility of success. OK, uh, the sort of like the successful performer is some sort of extremophile. Um, it's also, uh, you know, equilibrium, um, because if people watch for uh, whatever reason, then what we see is it becomes the law of supply. Right. So in productivity culture, um, it might be like living aesthetically. It might be drinking mushroom powder. It might be waking up at three o'clock in the morning. Um, and a lot of people are like onto this as as a scam, um, but a lot of people aren't. <laughs> a lot of people view this as the strategy um, that you should be using. Um, I think in some cases, it's just so over the top that it's like, obviously, okay, this person is trying to pretend that like um, their life is actually the inside of an L.L. Bean catalog or whatever, or a Land's End catalog. And I think other people... Um, no, it's more subtle, right? This sort of like um, virtue signaling of, yeah, no, yeah, I get up at three o'clock in the morning every day, I do this every day. Look at me, I am a man, right? This kind of nonsense, right? And then people are like, oh, well, I want to be masculine. So I, (sighs) holy crap, is that the answer? Um, And it just, right, becomes a downward spiral because it's also preying on people's anxieties and insecurities, right? And it's like, oh, I'm doing this thing, and right and it's, it's and then look at me look who i am right so it's not when it's not being as explicitly stated it somehow is actually more powerful and more subject subjective uh, suggestive excuse me to our brain right and then that's the law of supply people swarm to that and start to emulate that because they view the profitability of it to be so high right and when profit is high right supply is high so we get more and more people trying to do this right and um you know like people like I don't know what the actual data is on the number of Americans from any particular age group or demographic group is on going to the gym. Right. But like that has certainly been a uh, increase uh, in supply, right? There's been a surge in people representing themselves as having a gym going lifestyle, right? Now, one of the other reasons people are representing it is because of the belief, well, this is a way that I can get into this personal media, this uh, personal marketing space and make myself into a, um, right? Here I am exhibiting such and such lifestyle, and now I'm getting the big bucks because people want to platform uh, things off of my identity and off of my supposed lifestyle. It doesn't matter if my lifestyle is real or not. It just matters that people look at me representing whatever I'm doing. Um, You know, and then at that point, right, it sometimes becomes real uh, even when it wasn't supposed to, where then people, like when people can't make a distinction anymore, then they're just like changing, and these this can be like really shockingly fundamental. Uh, people might, you know, change all aspects of their style, you know, um, socially, but their personal appearance, the clothes that they wear, the way that they talk, um, in order to try to emulate what they see because they're just so strongly suggestible. Ray um, regarding uh, these, you know, looking at these people and envying slash resenting slash hoping to attain whatever that thing is that they imagine that they they have attained. And whereas maybe those people, it's an act of like uh, performance art, <laughs> performance marketing art or whatever, um, then other people start trying to live, live that out, right? And it's kind of like shows the power of popular culture in terms, we're oftentimes dismissive of popular culture, but it's really, really powerful in shaping a lot of our habits. And I see this a lot with athletes, um, you know, athletes that I talk to now, athletes that I've tried to work with in the past, um, and I'm sure this will always be an issue, right? Of like this, you know, sense of this comparative sense of what are other people doing? Um, well, I don't want to be seen, um, you know, like I've had athletes who've, I mean, here's a, probably the, one of my favorite sort of examples of the uh, how far out people will go with this. I've had athletes who basically haven't wanted um, to work with me anymore around their training no matter how well their training had had gone no matter what level of results you know they'd had and in some cases very good results because um they didn't want to be the, I I not meeting what they think the sort of you know coach within their sport is supposed to look like or what their sort of like projected um, identity is supposed to be right and they would rather and then of course the irony uh, is that they've gone and then, decline significantly in in performance because they've switched to training that's ineffective. Right. But that desire to live aesthetically around the sport is ultimately the competition that they, whether they realize it or not, has become more valuable to them. Um, And that's not a competition um, that usually relates to actual athletic performance. And, you know, you could get into the question of like, is it bad that people value, um, you know, living aesthetically within the sport um, or training aesthetically? Um, no, and the answer is no, it's not. But if we're looking at it from a perspective of, you know, is it bad that an athlete who wants to get faster gets slower, then that would from that perspective, we would say, yes, that is bad. Um, and, you know, I think once people have established uh, a level of um, reward, they will not let go, okay? And that might be a confusing concept Um, But what I mean by that is when we think about facilitating uh, extreme habits, it's very easy to push, right? We have an elastic capacity to survive, right? Um, For example, in bodybuilding, uh, you want to look at Mike Isretel's stuff on YouTube, his Renaissance periodization, um, a lot of interesting stuff on there. Um, But one of the things that is interesting, he talks about how uh, significant cal- caloric deficits for bodybuilding do not yield results, and that a very subtle stress is actually the point of maximum benefit. Beyond this, you're screwed. Seems to me that there's a f- threshold there, right? But people are pushing towards this high level of stuff, right? And once they're feeling a level of reward, um, whether that's like internal or socially external from doing this stuff in this sort of extreme way, they won't let go. They might like have a lot, might consistently get to periods where they just stop doing it all. But when they're trying to do it, they won't let go of that strategy, that approach to practice. I've had big conversations with people um, vis-a-vis the podcast, sent them a bunch of materials and, you know, thought that maybe there was a chance that they might be open to thinking about it a little bit differently. And then, you know, that, the classic, like, oh yeah, well, you know, I I'm gonna get back to you soon. And, you know, I, I don't care, right? This isn't my training, but you never hear from them again. Right. It's not easy. And I think what this what this reflects is it's not easy for change for people to change that mindset in in that way. Even if you think you've had a really a potentially productive conversation, you think you've planted maybe the seed um, of doubt, right, about the way they've gone about this stuff traditionally. Um but like fatigue Limits performance, right? And it limits race performance, but also limits training performance, and limits the performance which is improvement, okay? Um, and so this productivity culture, right? Which you know emphasizes, you know, things of like getting up really early, of you know, training really, really hard, of trying to like, I mean, it's very much this like water from a stone kind of a thing, um, like fatigue limits performance. And productivity lifestyle um, concepts are then basically counterproductive because this idea of like, oh yeah, you need to just milk everything you can out of every second or every hour of the day or that there's this like creating this idea of advantage. Well, what you're doing there is you're just guaranteeing that you're going to have an incredible level of fatigue, right? Um, And that's, that's counterproductive, right? And the people pushing this stuff. They don't care about your level of performance. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying they're taking any glee in your suffering, but like, that's not what's important to them, right? What's important to them is cultivating audience, right? And when that audience goes away, they're going to drop all this stuff like a hot potato and move on to the next thing, or else they're going to have to go and, you know, try to get some sort of a, a job or an income source that is outside of like cultivating media audience. Um, but like overtraining is just the easiest thing to do, you know, in this, when we change our perspective on this, right? But like productivity culture is basically sort of like borderline denying overtraining. And then you see, you know, sometimes people, you know, in tears about how it's all fallen apart, and they pursued this thing, and then they got to wherever they want to get and now they hate it, and it's just not for them. And, you know, it's a, it's a bummer. It's unfortunate to be miserable. But it's also, it's like, it probably is still for you. It's just you've now found yourself in this environment um, where because you pursued and you applied all of these progressively, like intensive norms, right? The kinds of things, again, we're saying are sort of similar to this productivity paradigm. As you've pursued this and pursued this and pursued this, like you've actually self-selected yourself into, you know, the environments that try to make that more and more and more like the reality, and eventually you get to a point where you're at a point of conflict between what's unsustainable and not. Um, and and then for a lot of people, right, that's that point of that point of failure. Um, and but then if environments are all like that, you know, these nasty productivity and productivity is a f- piece of false consciousness too, folks. Um, when a lot of these like productively false conscious environments are competing against one another. It's the same thing. Somebody's going to come out on top out of that. If it's designed as a competition for there to be one winner, then somebody's going to come out on top. That's not proof of concept. All that shows is that if you take a bunch of people applying, you know, if you roll the dice, right, and one dice comes up with number one, and you said whatever dice up comes up, number one is the winner, that doesn't prove that that die is any different than any other die. But that's oftentimes about the level of sophistication that we see in, in our, our conclusion region. Um, And, you know, then this is compounded an additional level because people are lying about their training too, Um, you know, either because they don't understand what they're talking about. And so they're saying, oh, I was at such and such intensity, but they really weren't. Like, you know, I brought up the example of supposedly Pauline for Anne Prevost, incredible ability to just take herself to a dark place in her training, does four by 20 minutes. And, you know, well, if her identified FTP is actually very, very close through whatever way they identified it to her, actually to her lactate threshold, let's say. Um, And I don't, I haven't jotted down any notes on how to explain that could exactly be the case. So, but let's just say hypothetically, that's what happened. Well, okay, obviously she's about to do four by 20 minutes because lactate threshold is very efficient, right? You know, it's very efficient. But I'm like, I'm sorry, like you're just not, you know, doing, you know, these idea that there are people out there who just their brains work in such an incredible way that they can handle pain and suffering, you know, in a, again, in this extremophile way, I just don't buy that, okay? I, I don't buy that. And they certainly wouldn't be people who are otherwise, as far as we can tell, present as being, like, overwhelmingly neuronormative. And, um, you know, but the problem is it doesn't matter, right? If people present the narrative, then what matters is what's consumed. And, you know, when it comes to training, that means that if lying about stuff gains audience, people lie. And people do this constantly, constantly do this, right? Uh, And I'm not trying to even be moralistic about this. I'm simply saying that the impressions we form regarding how people distribute their effort based on representation through constructive narratives are hugely misleading. And the productivity concept is an example of something that exploits our need to understand what people are doing to take advantage of that. And you hear some, what you hear sometimes is this question of, you know, is something a harmful narrative? You know, I feel like I've seen this come up more and more frequently now. And I would say, yeah, there absolutely are harmful narratives out there, harmful narratives out there. I think the LT2 narrative is a harmful narrative. I think productivity culture is a harmful narrative. Um, And, you know, I think people, you know, creating myths or misrepresenting their training, um, you know, or their lifestyle or their level of happiness and fulfillment as a result of pursuing their sport, I think that's harmful. Uh, it can be harmful at the same time people have the free market right to, you know, the the market right to if people want to consume it, they can consume it. Right. And an, if an author writes a book, publishes a book every year, and people love to read it, and they say that it's just really fun and awesome and exciting, and they just love writing, but actually they hate writing and it makes them cry, you know, that doesn't take away their right to, you know, Published and they doesn't take the way their right to misrepresent uh, their experience, right? And I think the obligation is on the rest of us, maybe to some extent, to just be a little bit more reasonable in thinking about this stuff and trying to manage this. So let's think about something practical, right? In the last part of this episode, um, how do we do something differently here? So let's think about the concept of managing training load, right? Instead of thinking about, am I doing as much as possible? Let's think about, am I managing what I'm doing as well as possible? And I think um, this uh, takes a ton of practice and self-discipline because of the social rewards and the internal rewards of pushing things beyond where they should be, right? It can be more of a rush. It could be more thrilling. It could be more validating to do something, to finish something that was really hard, okay? Um, and it can be hard to resist, you know, the social praise or the idea of like getting everybody, you know, thinking about you and, and what you're doing and what you're saying. That, those are things that can really change basically how people's brain chemistry functions. Um, and it can be really hard to resist that stuff. You know, I'd say for my part, I struggle the most with the internal aspect by far. Um, I think because I've never really, I think probably right? And other people would relate to this, I'm sure, right? In my case and other people's case, if you've never really, as has been true for me, if you've never really been in a position where you've experienced social rewards as a result of, you know, doing your training or doing your sport, you're just not really learning to associate with them. And if that's valuable to you, you would eventually have just stopped doing this sport. Um, and I've never gotten social rewards whatsoever, uh, for any of my, you know, pursuits with this stuff. So as a consequence, I've just haven't learned for it to be meaningful. So for me, I'm internally oriented as a by process of elimination, uh, you know. And I I love it when training feels like a power trip, like it's an absolute rush, like that is my favorite experience. Um, and you know, I I hate racing oftentimes because, or I hate racing experiences because I oftentimes am not getting to that point, and that's because I'm pushing myself way too hard in, in these races because my expectations for myself are just so consistently high because, you know, I learned formatively that, you know, you gotta push yourself. And unless you practice racing a lot, right, you're going to take a while to try to change your, change your brain to change your habits. You change most easily the habits that you work on changing the most frequently. Um, but like when you feel like the incredible, hulk and you're just powering across the landscape, whether it's running, uh, whether it's, it's on the bike, like to me, that is awesome. Um, and it's a total internal thing because, you know, you look like, you still just look like you're jogging, you know, or riding very pathetically slowly <laughs> down the road, but like your brain doesn't know that, like you don't know that. Um, so something is firing in our brain. And uh, I think for me, I'm constantly battling against searching for that state and, and sometimes when I'm, I'm, you know, working out, I might be really doing the workout exactly correctly, but it feels like I want to push for something more. And I know that Inigo San milan has suggested that, well, that's your body trying to get you to switch to glycolysis. Uh, and I think that's a very brain-free interpretation. And, you know, again, Tim Noakes, central governor, has talked about the problems of all these brain-free interpretations of exercise. I think that, you know, you're trying to switch because that level of satisfaction, right? Your sense of competence, right? You know, really trying to, you know, get to that peak um, level of flow, state sort of stimulation is very strong. Um, But I've also come to learn that that state is way the hell over threshold, okay? That is way the hell over threshold. Um, And if we use an idea... Uh, like Mike Isretel uses when he talks about uh, strength training and training for bodybuilding, he talks about maximum recoverable volume. And it sounds to me like he's somebody who has also probably, you know, his, his desire to see improvement has led to him to spend a lot of time just, you know, tr- taking everything to the absolute limit um, and not finding that's brought him to the absolute, you know, top. Again, these are people I don't know, right, and I'm acknowledging that. I'm speculating and using them sort of as examples to provoke, you know, further reflection on this stuff. Um, But should we be using this idea of like, what's the maximal recovery, recoverable volume, right? And, you know, does accumulating training volume over uh, mean that maximum recoverable volume actually would decline over time? Like, is maximum recoverable volume, though, even like sustainable? So you might be able to sort of recover from a certain volume or amount of kind of training in the short term but are you going to reach eventually a point at which, you know, as you accumulate training volume over time, that your maximum recoverable volume is going to decline, right? Because the other problem is we're going to be, again, subjectively defining our maximum recoverable volume by virtue of our preconceived notions about what's the training intensity we should be using. So in endurance sports, right, you know, Training also occurs, and there's clearly this tipping point. And I would argue that endurance for sports, it can be sometimes shockingly easy to go over that maximum recoverable volume line. So, how do you know if you're not over that line? Well, if you're like Michael Watson, you know, you train for four weeks and you're feeling good and you're feeling strong and you have positive engagement with your training sessions, and then you remeasure your, you know, your your standard test and you see, ah, oh, that's an improvement. That's a big improvement well, then you're probably still within that maximum recoverable volume. So, like, you have to use an empirical mindset to try to measure this stuff. Um, And then, you know, that then feeds into the concept of rest and thinking about what rest actually means. So rather than think about rest as the opposite of overtraining, let's think about rest as something that the greater our need for rest, the more likely we are to be overtraining, that we don't use rest In order to allow ourselves to train at these high intensities. But instead, right, our feeling of fatigue, right, which is what drives that desire, that need for rest, is the sign that we're overtraining. And for a lot of people, this is a big paradigm shift that if we're at the point where we're experiencing fatigue, muscular fatigue within the training sessions, or especially, or and especially outside of them, we are already past the point of overtraining. But most people feel that, you know, as was said, you know, represented in the Jim Ryan story, that it was only once the workout started to get hard that we felt like the training had actually begun. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you know anybody else who would enjoy this kind of deep, abyssal diving into consideration about what drives and shapes training and performance, especially for endurance sports, can recommend them to check out the Black Cats Run podcast. You can also check us out on our Instagram page at Black Cats Run. Send us a message. If you have any questions, if you have topics you want to hear us discover, if there's something that we've said here that you think is just wrong and you have some evidence that you want us to to consider and review we'd be happy to hear from you thanks for listening again and we'll catch you next time